Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. I've entitled our message today, The Church of the Unlikely, because we're talking about a passage of scripture where a lot of people came to Jesus that nobody, including the gospel writer, expected ever would. According to Robert Crawwich's blog on NPR, a small bird called the bar-tailed godwit grows up a little bit northwest of here, northern Alaska. But every fall they fly nearly 7,000 miles to New Zealand. When the young birds mature and start to migrate, something wired in them also directs them to New Zealand specifically. Though they are land birds, these birds can't fish. They can't land on the sea and rest. They will cross most of the Pacific Ocean, fly all the way. Many of them are young. They've never done this before. So how do they do it? Many of them never having been in the southern hemisphere, never having seen the southern scars. Nobody knows for sure. But they manage. One specific female, dubbed E7, because that was the code on her wireless transmitter, flew 11,680 kilometers in 8.1 days, nonstop. That same homing signal that guides them over treacherous waters to New Zealand navigates them back to their parents. What an amazing God-given trait. How is that even possible? that they're born and something in their brain is telling them they can migrate from Alaska to New Zealand. So how are humans at finding their way home? How are we at navigation? Science researcher Dr. Jan Suman used GPS monitors to track numerous volunteers as they tried to walk in a straight line without technology through Germany's Bienwald Forest. I looked that up, I pronounced it right, because I know you wonder through Germany's Bienwald Forest and the Sahara Desert. When clouds obstructed the sun, errors quickly accumulated, small deviations became large ones, and they ended up walking in circles. With no external cues to help them, here's how we are not the bar-tailed godwit. With no cues to help them, people will not travel more than 100 meters from their starting position, regardless of how long they walk for. This says a lot about our spatial system and what it requires to anchor us to our surroundings. We go in circles almost immediately. In the absence of landmarks and boundaries, our head direction cells can't compute direction and distance, leaving us flailing in space. So when you're walking in the woods and you think, I might be lost, you can pretty much count on it. We don't have great homing signals as human beings. What's interesting is that we do have a built-in spiritual homing signal that is intended to direct us back to God. Even though we're flawed because of the fall, there is something within us. The Bible actually uses this quote, and I love this. I think it's in the book of Acts. Eternity in our hearts. Isn't that a great line? That we've been created with eternity in our hearts. We would call it also the image of God, a reflection of the personhood of God, and also our eternal soul spirit that longs to connect to the ultimate spirit, the ultimate God, 
who we know through scripture. But that homing signal in us isn't perfect. Our homing device is flawed. We're conflicted, we're torn, and we are fully capable of flying a different route and thinking it's the way home. And Jesus had a word for that. The word he used was lost. People are lost. We've got a homing signal. We've got a beacon trying to guide us back to God, but it's imperfect. But this homing device never dies. N.T. Wright describes it this way. Of course, he's a Christ follower, and this is what he says about people who aren't, how this homing beacon stays alive. He says, there is all the difference in the world between waking up in a single bed and waking up in a double bed with nobody on the other side. Many in our Western culture may be atheists or agnostics, but they still find themselves wondering why the other side of the bed still feels warm and the sheet still rumpled. He said, I think this is true in ways that were not the case even 10 or 30 years ago. He's saying that people who are far from God still feel like there's somebody next to them. There's something out there that they know they need to connect with. How about this from somebody who's not a Christ follower, not a believer? This is an atheist. Julian Barnes says this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Isn't that interesting? And he's not trying to do comedy. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This is the opening line from a book titled Nothing to be Afraid of by the award-winning British writer Julian Barnes. Barnes, who describes himself as an agnostic, I was wrong, he's an agnostic, writes, I was never baptized, never sent to Sunday school, I've never been to a normal church service in my life. Yet this agnostic intellectual still feels haunted by the beauty of Christian art and music and by what he calls the wake-up call to morality. In other words, something tells me I have to be good. See, the homing device never dies. And honest agnostics, honest atheists admit it as well. Now for many of us, that's second nature. It's loud, it screams, and we nurture it through our devotion to Jesus. We're the likely. We came to faith, maybe as children, maybe as adults, but we're here, we're all in on God. And that homing beacon worked, and it's working. For others, its faint whisper stays alive, no matter how much it's suppressed. But all it takes is a little light for those whispers to become deafening. And many in that second group join our ranks over time. They turn from being lost to found. They find God. They find God through Jesus. And they are the church of the unlikely. It's the people we didn't really expect would ever come to faith. And they're more open to Jesus than you would ever expect. I want to read you a passage about that where that's the primary point that the gospel writer is making. It's in Matthew chapter 15. If you get about three quarters of the way through the Bible in front of you, you're going to have the New Testament starting with the book of Matthew. It's on page 13. So page 13, Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to begin in verse 21. 
And there's going to be a couple of different stories wrapped together here, and that's what gospel writers often do. They will group things together thematically to make a theological point. So often they won't necessarily come out and say, this is the point I'm making. They'll put stories together, and you can sort of read between the lines and understand, oh, that's what he's trying to say. And Matthew does that here. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. And it begins with this. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you're one of Matthew's readers, which were Jewish, his gospel was written to Jews, they would have been like, their eyes would have bulged when they saw that. So Jesus is leaving all Jewish territory. He's leaving Galilee, which did have, I believe, some Gentile cities in it. This is the first time in my recollection Jesus is fully outside of anything resembling Jewish soil. He goes to Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus is trying to set a boundary with her here. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And I believe that's the imperfect tense, which means she's not stopping. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. Now that sounds like Jewish territory, but I believe he's at the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. There are Gentile cities there. And having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and... Clearly, they're Gentiles. They glorified the God of Israel. Again, Matthew subtly making that point. These aren't Jews. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? Jesus said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And here's deja vu all over again. They took the seven loaves. Remember before it was five loaves and two fish? Well, this is seven loaves and the fish. And giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. There were 12 baskets full after the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children. This is a little different. This is the feeding of the 4,000 plus women and children. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Megadon. Just two simple points from the passage, and then we're to spend a little more time on the application. The unlikely, sometimes they're more open than the likely. This is the macro point of the whole passage. You've got multiple stories put together here that are all about Jesus' missions trip, if you will, which wasn't intended to be a missions trip at all. And the primary point Matthew is making is geography. 
That's why he introduces the section about where Jesus is going because it makes no sense. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. From Genesis chapter 12 all the way to the end of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is Jewish. It's about Jewish history. It's full of promises about a coming Messiah and King that will restore Israel to some sort of prominence and save everybody. And the assumption, of course, is that he would be welcomed and accepted. And the Jews are those who we would call the likely followers of this Messiah. So wherever Jesus goes, he should be able to go in Israel among the Jews, and it should be a slam dunk that he would be welcomed and embraced. That's the religious crowd. That's the church crowd. Those are the people who are in synagogue on Friday night or Saturday. I believe Saturday was synagogue day, but the Sabbath began Friday night at 6 till Saturday at 6. That's the likely group. So wherever Jesus goes in Israel, as their Messiah, performing miracles, proving who he is, he should be embraced, they should be all over him. But things weren't working out quite that well. People in his hometown, as you recall, Jesus preached a sermon, he's in Nazareth, where he grew up. I mean, people had bought dining sets from him there, furniture, Couches, tables. He preaches a sermon in that synagogue, takes a few shots at him. By the time it's over, they have him out on the edge of a cliff in Nazareth. They're ready to throw him off a cliff. And the Bible basically says he miraculously sort of disappeared from their grasp. And then he did that whole, we spoke about this a few weeks ago, eat my flesh, drink my blood sermon, which just didn't go over really well in a Jewish assembly as well. And almost everyone abandoned him at that point. The whole movement turned into basically an adult Sunday school class after that. And now the Pharisees and the scribes, which are Old Testament lawyers, they're questioning everything he does and they're watching his disciples, they're watching him and every time he speaks there's some new accusation that he's not keeping the tradition of the elders which is like their extra Bible. So now he's got religious enemies in the next chapter, the next verse, right after the passage I led, the, or read, the Pharisees and Sadducees have teamed up against him. Now what's fascinating about that is the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't even like each other. They don't go to the same seminary. The Sadducees were the liberals of the day. The Pharisees were the conservatives. They were theological enemies. The Sadducees didn't believe in any sort of resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Anyway, sorry. I know, it's pathetic, but the things you learn in Sunday school stay with you forever. So whoever did that to me at age five, shame on you. But they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. You will never forget that. I have violated your brain at this point. And the Pharisees were ultra conservative. They had God's word and they added to it and they were very legalistic and self-righteous. But Jesus is a threat to both of these groups. And so now you've got two groups that can't stand each other that would typically be debating each other. They're both there to try to solve Jesus and get rid of him. So Jesus, of course, leaves the country. Why stick around and deal with that? Because now his mission is to really take the 12 and we know one of them had some issues. Well, they all had issues, but one in particular. But he's taking the 12. He wants some alone time. He's going to train them for what is to come when he's crucified, rises again. 
He's gonna make sure they really know who he is by the time this is done. In fact, I believe some would say that when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, some would say that's actually on this missions trip, or I should say retreat, and this retreat might have been six months long. We don't necessarily have a lot of information from it, but it might have been as long as six months. So he needs to get away from people who knew what he can do. He's got opposition, but you've also got a whole group of people who've been healed from you know, blindness and being lame or deaf, all kinds of things. So Jesus has performed so many miracles, even though he's got enemies now, he's still gonna be thronged by the next group of people who wanna be healed or have somebody they know that they want to be healed. The next sermon series has to be written, and even though he's an itinerant preacher, which I kinda regret, or resent, Jesus only had to have about five or 10 sermons down, and that was it, because he kept going around speaking the same thing everywhere he went, and he's God, so it's kinda not fair for the rest of us. But even Jesus gets tired. You know, he, he gets tired. He's, he's human and he's divine, but he gets tired. So he's got a lot to do. He doesn't want to do it in Israel because he's Jewish. He's a Jewish Messiah. He's got opposition. He's got expectations. So he's, get, get, let's get out of here, guys. And so they leave. Gentile territory is the answer. I mean, it's full of pagans. They're not gonna come to church. It's full of Romans. They don't respect Judaism. It's full of ancient Phoenicians, you know, the specific group of Romans, the country that he's really walking into is ancient Phoenicia. They won't recognize or care about a Jewish rabbi and his little posse. Nobody will care. Let's go there, it's a little arid. Hey, we can go down to the Mediterranean, we can dip our feet in the salt water. And so that's the plan. So they go to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and I converted this into kilometers to be a good Canadian. It was 50 to 85 kilometers away. They went to Canmore, took a little walk on Silvertip, the golf course, we can see the three sisters, one of our favorite walks, Dee Dee and I. They went to Canmore, and they're thinking, nobody's gonna bother us here. And that's where Jesus' retreat went sideways. So Matthew introduces a woman who comes to Jesus for help as a Canaanite. I don't know if there's another place in the New Testament. I didn't look at this. I don't think there's another place in the New Testament you see that word, Canaanite. That just sounds a little, ah, like, like he's really bringing back some, some sore spots in ancient history. You know, the word screams Israel's ancient enemy coming into the promised land, and he's writing to Jews, so he uses that word. Mark doesn't use that word. Mark, who's a little nicer than Matthew, Mark calls her a Greek, like from Syrophoenicia. Matthew says, Canaanite. Jesus is on his retreat now. Canaanite comes to see him. And she had a daughter who the Bible says was cruelly demon-possessed. Now, demon possession would result in some sort of, you know, often self-mutilation, you know, hurting yourself because the demon is trying to destroy the physical body. And so I don't know what's going on with this woman's daughter, but it's not good. The woman is desperate. And somehow news had traveled about Jesus from Galilee all the way to Canmore. And there, this woman hears that there's hope. She had heard what, what he could do. And she even knew 
the possibility that he was the Messiah. And so when Jesus approaches this region of Tyre and Sidon, she comes out and she calls him, think about this, something the Pharisees would never call him after witnessing countless miracles. She calls him the son of David. Here's a Canaanite that the Israelites were to push out of the land thousands of years before, calling Jesus son of David, Israel's hope the king. And Jesus, he did not want to open this door. He's having a spiritual retreat with the 12. And as you know, Judas needs a lot of work, a lot of catching up. So he ignores her. Well, that didn't work. The disciples are getting sick of her and they say, Jesus, like, Send her away. Now, some commentators would say they're implying Jesus, like, fix her problem and send her away. But either way, get her out of here. We've got small group time coming up at 2 o'clock. We're getting off schedule. But she wasn't giving up. And the imperfect tense in the Greek indicates an action that happens over and over and over. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Jesus, she gets on her knees. She's bowing down before him. She makes it very clear to all of them, the 13, this woman is not going anywhere until she gets what she wants. And so a conversation started where Jesus basically says something that's more deeply theological than you would expect. He said, I'm here for Israel, not for you. I'm here, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. Which is interesting because when Messiah comes into the world, he's presenting himself to his own nation. He needs to be accepted by Israel as their king. So he's actually stating that. What's interesting is that was such an expectation even after Jesus rose from the dead. You know what the first question in Acts to Jesus is? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still expecting a physical earthly kingdom. And so for that to happen, Jesus would have had to have been embraced and accepted by his own people. And he's just making that point to her. I'm really here for Israel. I'm their king. So that's my primary purpose. And then she bows down and she's begging, help me. I couldn't care less who you came for. It's in the, in the Greek. I couldn't care less who you came for. I'm here for help. My daughter's messed up. And I know that you are the son of David and you can solve this problem. And then Jesus says some things that I know that we want to take the edge off of this, but it's not nice. But the beauty of being Jesus is we never accuse him of sinning when he does this stuff. It's not good to give the children's bread to the dogs. You're saying, did he just call, did he just say that? He did, he did, and let me explain it. I could show you a commentary where a commentator who is fairly highly respected on historical issues says that's like using the B word in their culture. Okay, get it? Send your complaints to aaron.mackey at bethanychapel.com. Jesus used one of the most pejorative words in that culture that Jews used of Gentiles. Now he probably had a lot of body language that let her know I really do care about you. And there are a couple of different words for dogs. This one might have taken the edge off a little bit, but he still said it. So it's, it's not right to take what's meant for the children, the nation of Israel, and give it to the dogs. And dogs, most dogs in that culture weren't little puppies that you took care of at home. They were wild dogs that scavenged for the most part. But he took the edge off the word a little. And then she says this. Well, Jesus, 
Even dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table. Now what's interesting about that is one commentator says that that would basically be like her saying this, you know, in that culture, they would just dip food with their fingers. You know, it was not a COVID-friendly culture, actually very COVID-friendly, a great way to transmit anything. But they would dip food in together, maybe in a common bowl, and, and they would eat it. And they didn't have utensils, and they didn't have napkins. So what they would do, and I don't know if they did this in poor homes, because to me this seems wasteful, they would use pieces of bread as sort of what you would get the juice off your fingers with. The pieces of bread were sort of like napkins, you throw them to the dogs. That's what she's possibly referring to. Even dogs get the crumbs from the table. Jesus said, okay, you win. Your faith is great. Your daughter's healed. She was healed from that moment. Not in his presence that we know of, but she was healed. That is the first miracle that we are aware of that took place in purely Gentile territory. Not the first Gentile who was ministered to by Jesus. He's been in the Decapolis, which were Gentile cities that were in the region of Galilee, I believe. But this is the first clearly Gentile miracle, Gentile territory, where we wouldn't have even expected Jesus to ever go. Well, now it's a party. And it was a party Jesus didn't want. This was supposed to be a small group retreat. Again, remember, we've got, we're trying to train the 11. We've got a lot of remedial work to do with Judas. He looks a little scary. Matthew 7 includes a miracle from the trip or I'm sorry, Mark 7 includes a miracle from the trip that we don't have in Matthew, where Jesus heals somebody who is deaf and mute, can't hear, can't speak. And when he heals that person, the dude is so excited that Jesus said, you need to like, and throw away the key. Don't tell anybody about this. Again, this is a spiritual retreat for me and my buddies here. You think that guy obeyed Jesus? That was the best disobedience to God in the history of Christianity. Are you kidding me? You've changed my life. I'm not obeying that order. And he blabbed it to everybody. First time he could probably ever talk. And he didn't shut, shut it down. He was up late that night. He's tweeting. He's Snapchatting. He's on Facebook. He orders absolute silence. But Jesus told him that because he knew what could happen if this man wasn't quiet. And that's what happened. Our point number two, the unlikely, God's compassion and power knows no bounds. This exploded in Gentile territory. Crowds came from everywhere. You got this dude who couldn't talk, you know, all the way through grade school, all the way through, you know, synagogue school, and he, he just was, he was always the guy who was on the outs. It affected him socially. It affected him with his career. Now the guy can't shut up, and he is like a one-man church growth committee, and he's talking about Jesus. Crowds are coming from everywhere. Probably the woman with the demon-possessed daughter, she's doing the same thing, and she knows social media better than the deaf-mute guy does. So it's out there. And so people start coming, hundreds, thousands of people on this little retreat that got wrecked because Jesus can't help himself. He's helping people. And now we got people coming and they don't look like the disciples and they don't talk like the disciples and they've got different languages and different dialects and different accents. And, but they share the same human problems. So in verse 30 and 31, 
This gets out of control. Large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And, he lay, and they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. And then he kind of repeats all those same maladies in the positive way. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified, and you won't see this many places. Why would Matthew say this? Because it's Gentiles. They glorified the God of Israel. So all these ancient Canaanites who were to be pushed out of the land because it was the promised land to the Jews are now coming to faith in their country and they glorify the God of Israel. Well, now it's more than a clinic with 100% positive outcomes. Now it's a movement. And now they're listening. And now Jesus has an audience to hear what he has to say spiritually. How else do you explain that Jesus mentioned that the crowds were with him for three days before the feeding of the 4,000 dudes plus wives and kids? So I call this the feeding of the 12 to 16,000. They're with him for three days. So he feeds 12 to 16,000 people. He's got them hanging out on the side of a mountain. Supposed to be a retreat with the 12. Now it's a mass evangelistic and healing crusade. And he couldn't stop it if he tried. God is being God. It's going to get busy. Hearts were open. And he couldn't stop it. See, the unlikely, the people that you and I would give up on, the people that you and I would expect, they're never going to go to church for you. We need to talk to them. Uh, honey, let's not, let's not have them over. There's not going to be an open door there. Let, you, know, they, they, you know, they have the image of God in them. God can use somebody when they're open. We're just going to, we're going to move on to some people who maybe got a Christian background. They look a little more likely to be saved. They look kind of like almost saved already, so they're probably good candidates. The unlikely were on to him. And the spiritual needs that they had, which are the same as yours and mine, were being met. And now everything that had happened on Jewish soil is happening in Gentile territory with the unlikely, the people who are far from God in our minds. I want to close with a few apps. First, the likely versus unlikely analysis is our own dangerous calculation. Now, what I'm saying is we really shouldn't be spending a lot of time thinking like that, but Matthew's actually making that point. You know, he's making the point that this is a group of people that we never expected would be part of the Jewish or the Jesus movement. He, he's showing that, that this is an unexpected response, that this retreat became a missions trip. But that doesn't mean it's okay for us to look at people this way. We don't want to get there because we tend to judge people's openness to Jesus too quickly. We sort of size people up and we size up whether there's a risk of being in their lives or trying to witness to them, God forbid, over time. We assume it's, it's good if they come from religious homes, like we'll have some affinity, you know, yeah, that person was, maybe they were baptized as a baby and they've fallen away, they never really followed through with those commitments, they're kind of religious. I know they've gone to church in the last five or 10 years a little bit and they may not be Jesus followers, but they can't be that far from God, so I'll take a risk with that person. We assume it's good if they're a lot like Christians before they become Christians. Makes us feel a little safer in our capacity as people who are supposed to open our mouths about Jesus. That's not okay. That's not okay. They're never going to cross over. 
if we never tell them. All people have that same spiritual homing device. Robbie Zacharias and Dick Vitale write, I love sports, but here's a sporting experience I would never want to have. Imagine being thrown into a game without knowing when it started, when it will finish, what the objective of the game is, or what the rules are. What do you do? You probably ask the other players around you to answer those four questions for you. They must have known about me watching Olympic curling this week and trying to figure it out. What if they responded with many different answers? What if they simply carried on playing, uninterested in your question, looking at you oddly for asking them? Next, you would look to a coach for help. But what if the coach was standing there looking at the chaos and yelling, great job, guys, you're all doing great. Keep going. We got a first place trophy waiting for all of you. Finally, you turn to find the referee or umpire for definitive answers to your questions. But what if the players had gotten frustrated with the referee's calls and sent him home? Now imagine the conversations about the game on the drive home. They'd be completely meaningless. It is our knowledge of the start, our knowledge of the finish, our knowledge of the objective, our knowledge of the rules of a game that provide us with the freedom to play it and to enjoy it in a meaningful way. Sadly, this life is not just a game. It's reality for many who are struggling to live a meaningful life in a pluralistic culture. And as a society, we're losing the answers to these four critical questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? How should I live? Where am I headed? Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. You know who's asking those questions? Everybody is asking those questions. Not just the likely. Everybody is asking those questions. Second, the unlikely are invested in falsehood. And that's not working for them. We assume when people are sort of following something else, maybe another religion, maybe another path, well, well that, they're not going to be very open to Jesus. Well, what we don't realize often is, guess what? That's not working for them. It really isn't because they don't have the truth, so you know it's not working. That works for us. In the Jesus movement, it's not working for them because they don't have the truth. And I want to give you an illustration from science and religion where this is true. So here's a famous atheist. One of the most astonishing discoveries astrophysicists have made in recent decades is that if gravity were just point, like a bunch of zeros, one trillionth stronger. So if gravity is one trillionth stronger, or I should say a trillionth of one percent stronger, our universe would have reversed course long ago. It would have collapsed catastrophically, ending in a big crunch. So you heard of the Big Bang, and the question is, is the universe still expanding? And there are some theories that when it stops and runs out of energy, that it will then, gravity will pull it together. That would be called a big crunch. It's not a new candy bar. It's an astrophysicist theory. The opposite of the Big Bang. Likewise, if gravity were just one trillionth of one percent weaker, our universe would have flown apart so rapidly that planets, stars, galaxies, all the basic constituents of the universe would never have had a chance to coalesce. We'd all be dust in the wind. Famous rock song from the 70s, for those of you who don't know. Is it an accident that everything turned out so well? That gravity is not too strong or not too weak? That a trillionth of one percent in either direction and the universe does not exist? Not just Earth, but the universe? 
Fred Hoyle, the late University of Cambridge astronomer and avowed atheist, didn't think so. Not for a second. After doing innumerable computations, Hoyle discovered that the odds of our being accidents of nature are comparable to the likelihood of our tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a scrap metal into a fully functioning Boeing 747. So small as to be negligible, he said, following his calculations. Even if a tornado were to blow through enough junkyards to fill the whole universe, that's never going to happen that we create a 747. One arrives at the conclusion, he says, that biomaterials with their amazing measure of order, their amazing measure or order, must be the outcome of intelligent design. Well, that's not a very good atheist. One who's acknowledging the possibility of God or something like God. But you see that faint light within him, the homing device, still works. Discovery Magazine concluded that we have 700 quintillion planets. That's seven plus 20 zeros, 700 quintillion planets. Earth is the only one we know that is a Goldilocks planet where we have the right temperature for life, the existence of water for life with that temperature. And they're concluding that is really amazing chance, isn't it, for all of us? See, even scientists know. Even the ones in the disciplines that would seem to make them atheists know. How about religion? On the other end of the earth in the largely Hindu nation of Nepal, Christianity and church planting are exploding. In Nepal, an article on NPR noted, Nepal has one of the fastest growing Christian populations in the world. According to the national census of the Christian population has grown from zero in 1951. Think about that, zero Christians that we're aware of. 1951, 70 years ago to 458 a decade later, to 102,000 in 2001, almost 400,000 a decade later, and I don't have the latest statistics. I would guess now 500,000 to a million based on that kind of growth, or more. As missiologist Christopher J. Wright has said, missions is now from anywhere to everywhere. You see, that's happening, and I gotta tell you, that mission story in Nepal is the unlikely. It's the most unlikely to penetrate a Muslim or Hindu population like that with the gospel is the most unlikely story you'll ever hear in missiology. But there's always that homing device, that hunger for the truth. Third, the likely often have the hardest struggle with faith. We, see, we assume that it's the unlikely, the person who seems far from God that's gonna struggle with faith. I'm not sure that's our experience anymore. It's often those inside the church that struggle the most. Those who might not have been given an accurate view of Jesus. They want to fit in with the culture. God has let them down. God is too narrow. I would agree. I would agree with you. He kind of is at times. I don't like God on many subjects, but I'm not God. I'm still lobbying for God to create a new erasable Bible, like the DIY edition, you know, the do-it-yourself, make it up as you go but God doesn't give us that option. But that's the option that so many likely want. In his book, Witness Essentials, Daniel Meyer tells the story of meeting a man named Gary who had grown up in sort of a bad version of Christianity. And I love this because I think it's a legitimate illustration to use with people you know, maybe on the edge of faith, on the edge of the church. 
He said on several occasions, Gary stressed that this was the reason he was no longer interested in Christianity, his background in the church. For a long time, I just tried to resonate with how difficult his childhood must have been. And one day, I, I felt led to press the matter a little bit further, and I recounted my own experience of growing up under the care of a dentist who basically physically abused me. For years, it made me avoid dentists altogether. When I related the story to Gary, I said, one day the truth hit me. That man was a very bad dentist. But these are my teeth. Am I going to go my whole life bypassing the benefits of dentistry because that particular doc was a quack? And there was a moment of quiet at the table. Gary, I said, I like you a lot, so let me dare to ask you a difficult question. How long are you going to get, let the bad experience that you had with certain Christians stop you from getting proper care for your soul? What if there are actually some great spiritual doctors out there? Gary now is a regular at our church, not a believer yet, but he's seeking again. Boy, that relates to an awful lot of people in the Western world. Bad experience with Christians, bad experience with the church, bad experience with God to some degree, but mostly Christians, mostly the church. And the question they've got to answer is this. If not Jesus, then who? If not this way, then what way? And finally, bringing it back to each one of us, who in your life would join the church of the unlikely? And how are you engaging them? We've all got people like that in our lives that we expect might be a little harder to reach than others. We got a survey here, and I'm gonna close with this. It was actually done about Christianity growing in England, and I think that's good because I think that there's some differences between Canada and the U.S. as far as the presence of the church, et cetera, and Canada is probably somewhere between the U.S. and Europe as far as its receptivity to, to the gospel. In Europe, it's far, progressed far more than in Canada or the U.S. as far as people walking away from organized religion. A recent survey done in England offers insights into the minds of those who do not attend church and ideas for reaching them, the unreachable. Most of those surveyed agreed that the strongest motivating factor for attending a service would be the personal invitation of a family member or friend. Other prime motivators, a more general church invitation, difficult personal circumstances, personal illness, or a time of depression. The survey found that openness to alternative worship structures and special midweek gatherings also catch the eye of the seeker. England's Fresh Expressions movement is proving quite effective in its experimentation with church traditions, attracting young and old alike, modern or postmodern. Some churches in England have created a special Back to Church Sunday, inviting lapsed attenders to come back and reconsider commitment. Over 20 churches in the London area have adopted the event as a regular part of their calendar. But what they're talking about is these countries that are almost dead to Christianity, where in some cases historic churches have been sold to other religions that are now old services there. There's a movement, again, of people coming back to church and coming back to faith. In countries where the gospel's grown cold, they are the churches of the unlikely. We all have people like that in our lives. You never know who is open. You never know who is open. Do they know that you follow Jesus? 
Because that's the most important thing. In my life, and my wife's life, we just, we just want to get to know as many people as possible. As many people as possible. And we put ourselves in social settings to do that. Why? Because someday there's going to be an opportunity with some of the many. And we don't know who's going to be the most open. But we have to be in their lives. Or we'll never have a chance. God, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this story that Matthew sent to his Jewish audience as they're understanding the gospel going to all nations and that even in Jesus' lifetime, he had a history of doing that, not just with the Great Commission, but long before that. He, he modeled it. He, he went on a little retreat with his disciples and it exploded into a missions trip where thousands and thousands of people began to understand who he is and what he was capable of and they began to follow him. And I pray that you would help us to have that kind of openness to the whole world around us, to the people that we might expect will never come to know you. Help us to remember that they have a homing device too. They've been made in your image. They have eternity in their hearts. And help us to be available and in their lives enough so that when there is an openness to you that we are there to speak up for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.